1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host Christian Peterson. For each program we choose a new book that's especially interesting and we chat with the author of that book. For this program I had the pleasure of speaking with Paul O'Connor about his great new book Islam in Hong Kong, Muslims and Everyday Life in China's World City, which was published with University of Hong Kong Press in 2012. What does the everyday experience of Muslim minorities look like? We have often heard about what Muslims deal with in the West, but what about Muslim minorities in the East? This was one of the questions Paul O'Connor wanted to explore in this new book. O'Connor provides an ethnography of everyday life for the various Muslim communities in this modern city. He outlines institutions and organizations in the religious landscape of permanent Muslim minority communities. He explores the meaning of various spaces in the urban environment, such as home, school, mosque, and public spaces like malls or the Chongqing mansions. He, he also examines the dynamics of food and language in shaping everyday practices and relationships. In our conversation, we discuss changes occurring after the end of colonial power, multilingual opportunities, halal food, religious and secular education, racism. Indonesian foreign domestic workers, Muslim youth use of urban public and online spaces, minority experiences of Muslims in East and West and everyday hybridity. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for listening. Welcome. This morning I have the pleasure of speaking with Paul O'Connor about his great book Islam in Hong Kong: Muslims in Everyday Life in China's World City. Thanks for joining me,
0: Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Christian. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Yeah, we appreciate you making some time to talk to us. Um, now, this is this is a, a really interesting book, um, and you, you might not guess uh, kind of some of the things you would cover by the title. You might think it's just about um, Chinese Muslims, which are often in the news, but you, people don't hear a lot about them. But you're really talking about um, multiculturalism, um, kind of the integration of... Uh, various ethnic Muslim groups into uh, this uh, metropolis. And it's really a fascinating uh, work, and uh, I, I think you take a really good spin by focusing on this idea of the everyday life, and what, what is actually going on in in the life of Muslims day to day. So um, sure. it's a really great book.
0: Thank you. Thanks
1: very much. Um, before we, we get into uh, some of the details here and you kind of give us some background, um, maybe you could introduce yourself, uh Tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in uh, Islam. Maybe some people that might have been influential uh, in how you how you approach your topic, uh, or other things that, that that kind of led up to this book.
0: Sure. Okay. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I, I'm Paul O'Connor. I'm uh, been I've been living in Hong Kong for about twelve years now, but originally I'm from the UK. And I grew up in a time in the UK where uh, we had the first Gulf War. We had the the Salman Rushdie affair, which was a really big deal in the UK when I was uh, in in my early teens. And I came from a part of the UK which was really very rural and there was not much ethnic diversity. Multiculturalism was not something that I encountered in my daily life. But I became very interested in what was happening in other parts of the country. And that led me to study uh, religious minorities, I, I guess, in school through religious studies, And I took that further through my studies, and eventually to university, looking at Islam and looking at Hinduism in the UK. That's the origins of my interests, and I have what you would call as an interdisciplinary background. So I've done religious studies, I've done area studies in my MA, looking at uh, Middle East politics and history, and then. I went on to do my doctorate in sociology so the interest in Islam in Hong Kong came from the fact that in the UK I was studying British Muslims making the pilgrimage to Mecca and my wife was from Hong Kong and uh, we were going back for a visit and I thought I wonder if any Muslims from Hong Kong exist and are they going to make the pilgrimage and I started looking at the statistics and when we arrived in Hong Kong I was really surprised by the Islamic community here because it was clearly multi-ethnic. It wasn't just Chinese Muslims, as you already mentioned. It was really diverse and it was also very much established. It had a history. It was, um, it was very kind of low key as well. And that was a surprise coming from the UK where issues of Islam very much politicized, and I noticed that in Hong Kong there was this kind of relaxed status. Being a Muslim in in Hong Kong wasn't really a political issue. And so I thought, I've got to study this. I've got to get involved and find out what's going on. So after my MA was finished, I basically got involved in doing the PhD app here, and um, that was really looking at, at young Muslims, looking at Muslim youth in Hong Kong, and looking at their everyday experiences, what I ended up terming as everyday hybridity, what kind of mixture were they experiencing being often in many cases a South Asian Muslim in a Chinese cultural so that was the genesis of, of what became the book. After the PhD was finished, I expanded some of the topics and then focused more clearly on uh, the broader idea of Islam in Hong Kong and the experiences of Muslims. So that's that's, that's the background from, from where I come and, and how the project evolved.
1: Great. Now, uh, yeah, I think one of the key words here that that you get after reading this book is this idea of diversity i'm wondering if you could kind of give us a snapshot what what does the muslim community look like in hong kong sure okay so we're we're looking at hong kong as having a population of around
0: seven million people And Muslims make up about 2% of the population, looking at about 250,000 Muslims currently living, working in the territory. And of that 250,000, we have about 160,000, which fluctuates year on year, who are actually Indonesian foreign domestic workers. These are the largest proportions of Muslims in Hong Kong. And they are actually a transient population because they are here to help with domestic chores, helping families so they can go out and work, um, looking after children, looking after elderly people. And they may be here for a two-year contract up to something like 10 years, depending on what kind of uh, a deal they get. They are very, very uh, transnational. They, they don't become completely attached to Hong Kong, although a lot of them end up speaking Cantonese. And also they're a young population. Most of these people are young women. So we have interesting sort of demographic makeup when we look at the largest population of Muslims in Hong Kong at the moment, because Hong Kong changes so much, but at the moment being uh, young Indonesian women. This is contrasted then by uh, uh, um, another large group being the Chinese Muslims, uh, accounting for about 30,000 Muslims, the population being about 30,000. They are a more established community, but they're also a lot less they uh, being ethically Chinese they, they can choose to show their Muslim identity when they actually visit the mosque or if they're wearing the head stuff but ultimately they're a much more invisible uh, side mm-hmm. this in of Hong Kong and they also tend to be uh, they have a different focus so they tend to look at being Muslim uh, more important in their later life following religion being more important in their later lives That's contrasted with our other uh, large visible group of South Asian Muslims who number around somewhere between sort of 50, 15,000 to 20,000. Uh, and that's kind of an ambiguous statistic because of the way the Hong Kong government does its uh, data and population. But we, we, we reckon there's probably up to 12,000 South Asian Muslims, if not more, in Hong Kong. Uh, a lot of these are Pakistani and they have a much more visible presence in being uh, ethnically different uh also being largely uh visible as a male population in terms of the work that you see them doing around the territory in terms of doing uh, a lot of uh, work as security guards road workers having a lot of uh, uh, people involved in menial work there's, a, there's quite a, a visible presence of South Asian Muslims in those areas I go into some of the history of that in the book that evolved. And also there are younger populations, so there's a lot of South Asian Muslims who are in school who are going to the mosque, they are in their, their teens and, and going to Islamic kindergarten. So there's a very different dynamic across these different groups. And those are the key groups. And on top of that, have uh, a variety of other dynamics going on with expatriate Muslims coming from the Middle East or um, we have Malaysian populations we have even local Hong Kong uh, Chinese that are now getting interested in this um, and converting. so there's a lot of dynamics going on and it makes a very interesting subject to observe and study Um, and that's partly why I became so enthralled in doing this is setting up a very different idea of Islamic community to what we in the West. And as you noted as well, the situation with uh, Muslims in China has a very different um, image uh, in, in academia and also in, in, the, in the media. So Islam in Hong Kong doesn't fit in either perspective. The Muslims here aren't having the same kind of experience that they would have in the UK or in America or in Australia, those kinds of Europe, but they're also not having similar experience to Muslims. We have a real mixed, a kind of a, a liminality. They're in between these two worlds and they share some of the experiences but they
1: have a type, status and day in day One of the theoretical positions you take here, and you, you mentioned it uh, while you were kind of introducing the book, um, is this idea of everyday hybridity. Um, and you you mentioned in the book later people like uh, de Soto and some others what exactly how does this help you kind of frame your study uh, what is what does this concept of everyday hybridity mean to you um, and how how might that be useful for for other people
0: yeah okay uh, that that's great a uh, great question um, this was the real challenge when I started looking into What I was researching, I found immediately that all the existing work on Muslims as minorities, particularly in, you know, the developed West, this kind of urban experience of Muslims, it was so important for for Hong Kong it just didn't translate. There was a lot of stuff about um, cultural hybridity that seemed to be the most urgent, important thing to talk about because that's what I was seeing played out in everyday scenarios. It was urgent to to address things through that, that paradigm, but the paradigm didn't work because it was so contested. So looking at what was going on in the UK Um, looking at what was going on in the States, the way in which hybridity had been criticized and really torn to bits as being just a mode of thinking for the elite, that it was only really addressing celebrated fusion. It had nothing to do with the, the actual everyday, the more mundane examples of cultural mix. And so I was really trying to grapple with this idea that Hybridity is, is relevant in my situation to what I'm looking at, but a lot of what exists about uh, on hybridity doesn't include Muslims per se. It doesn't really uh, look at issues of everyday encounter, of language, of dealing with food. It looks more at style and appearance and image. And I thought I, I've got to push this forward. I've got to somehow make a tool out of this idea of hybridity that's useful for what I'm talking about. And that's how I became uh, more focused on looking at everyday life theory and looking at how I could fuse notions of hybridity with the more mundane and the everyday as a way of dealing with what uh, I was experiencing and what I was looking at. So that's how I engage with everyday hybridity. What everyday hybridity means to me is the, the very simple idea of how people cope with difference and how they use difference in very pragmatic ways how we think of people being diverse, sometimes as a sort of political celebration, the idea of a, a multicultural uh, sort of festivity which we can all share and, and be happy about and you know, uh, uh, deal with each other's differences is, is, is very nice in one sense, but the practicalities are that people have to deal with really quite... <sighs> Boring, everyday factors, you know, the quotidian aspect of dealing with difference isn't always a celebration. It isn't always nice. It doesn't actually mean that it's bad either. It's just there's a, a, a pragmatism that's involved. And I try to really capture that and harness that. for for, for this book, looking at not so much what were the 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 religious activities involved in being a Muslim in Hong Kong but what were the the actual social, cultural uh, challenges and obstacles and and also the the, the ethos of being a Muslim in Hong Kong. And That's how everyday hybridity fits for me.
1: Now uh, I, I don't think we need to go into great detail. You, you, you lay out kind of a, a history of, of Muslims in Hong Kong for us, um, especially after talking about this idea of everyday hybridity. And uh, I think it might be more interesting to, to kind of focus on what's going on today. But perhaps you could kind of just uh, give us a bird's eye view of the landscape. of um, in, that, in that history, you talk about some important institutions, some important organizations that are still around and still very important in the everyday life of Muslims. So could, could you talk a little bit about these places and uh, groups that, that, that uh, reflect in the everyday life of Muslims? Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, when we take a look at the history of Islam in Hong Kong. Uh, One of the things that people first find of interest is the fact that the modern history of Hong Kong, the colonial history of Hong Kong, is also the beginning of the Islamic history in Hong Kong. Even though it was quite possible that Chinese Muslims came and visited and traded and even worked in Hong Kong prior uh, to the uh, 1840s, there was no real Islamic presence here. But as the British arrived, Muslims, as soldiers, as part of the the British colonial enterprise, as merchants um, as sailors, they arrived with the whole mechanism by the 1850s It became apparent that there was a need for some Islamic organization and infrastructure to help um, Muslims deal with again the everyday issues of dealing with the dead, having a place to worship, and then we see the the beginnings of the um, Islamic trustees and they became the key a group and still are the key group today that oversees the cemeteries in Hong Kong, that oversees the mosques and when the government has to liaise with the Muslim community they go through the trustees of the Islamic Community Fund and the government also gave land to the Islamic community in the 1850s to build mosques uh, on Hong Kong Island. Uh, We have um, one in Wan Chai in the center area and also Um, near two areas where there were um, prisons where there uh, was a large contingent of uh, Muslim prison guards and again over on Kowloon's side we also see the land was given right next to where soldiers actually had their recreation, where they had their barracks. And that continues to be a very key area today where we see the Karolun Mosque. um, And it has a lot of South Asian businesses nearby as well. So that was the origins. And from that history uh, uh, of Islam in Hong Kong from the, the colonial period, we see that things have continued in many ways. Uh, there still remains a a strong presence of Muslims in the territory and they still help contribute to the community in in helping support. Like we see, it used to be that that it was primarily a male South Asian majority of Muslims in the territory. Now we see that there is a a majority of female Southeast Asian Muslims in the territory. So it's very interesting how Muslims have played an important role in Hong Kong's history. And that they continue to, but how that role changes, just like Hong Kong changes as well, that there is that same kind of or almost a, a kind of a, a parallel dynamic. That as the territory changes, so does the different uh, profile and uh, importance, and the role of the Islamic community here. So uh, in, the, in the first section of the book, I look at that, I look I look at the, the, the history of Islam, and then I bring it up to date, looking at the transformations, looking at some of the key issues over the last 10 years in which we see the, the changes in the Islamic uh, population, particularly the rise in Indonesian uh, foreign domestic workers after the SARS crisis in 2003. Also look at some of the... Um, political issues, the the demonstrations that followed the uh, the Danish uh, cartoons in 2006, and there was an international outcry there about the, the, Dan- the publication of the Danish cartoons. And also I, I speak about um, Chunking Mansions, which is a, a notorious place in Hong Kong for people who have passed through as, as backpackers, and how that uh, particular building is associated not just with Muslims, but it's associated with um, foreigners, with uh, um, ethnic minorities, and also perhaps with a little bit of danger as well. So I look at those foundations, the image that we have of of Muslims in Hong Kong, where the history comes from and um, where it's going. Uh, And that's really the very first part of the book, how how we set that up and then we go on to look more at the actual religious practice and the issues of everyday life as well.
1: Yeah, and um, I, I really appreciate how you focus on Muslim youth, which um, you, you, you kind of alluded to this in the beginning. In Islamic studies, usually we focus on kind of the elites uh, or texts, right? So this gives yeah. us a really interesting perspective on, on what Muslim life is like. Um, one of the first kind of topics you tackle, um, is you, you call it learning to be Muslim. Could you explain, uh, what, what this entails for Muslim youth? And you, you talk about various locations, how this happens in the home, how this happens at school, at the mosque. Can you kind of tell us, uh, take us through kind of the everyday life in these various spots of how, how people are learning to be Muslim?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah this seemed to be an essential thing to to broach because we're looking at uh, largely a a group of Muslims that are born and raised in Hong Kong that are not in an Islamic um, culture. And I wanted to express some of the ways in which these young Muslims actually learn about their religion and they learn to become Muslim in a, a climate that is... You know, it's a westernized Chinese environment, basically. Um, and I think a lot of people will actually find this section that it actually is quite a good mirror of what you might find about Muslims living in minority in the West. There is the same kind of situation in which uh, Muslim youth will learn about Islam, not so much from the community, but from their parents, first of all. Looking at how Islam is practiced in the home, and following some of those examples, and then around the age of seven, actually going to the mosque and starting to actually learn how to read the Quran, and of course in Hong Kong there's only only five main mosques, even though there are a number of um, small madrasas in the the new territories now. So there are a number of different places where. These young kids can go to learn about um, the Quran, and they tend to do that after school. This is very interesting because once they get to school, their religious knowledge uh, or their religious education pretty much becomes zero, unless they're going to an actual religious school, which there's only a handful of Islamic kindergartens. A lot of kids are going to schools in which um, they might have a Christian background or or perhaps even a Buddhist background. So their religious education tends to be skewed in one direction. So beyond the mosque or beyond the madrasa, they are learning uh, very little about Islam in their daily life. They don't seem to have the same kind of knowledge. Uh, there isn't a, a, a multicultural religious education in many of the schools in Hong Kong. So their religious education is confined to learning how to read the Quran and attending the mosque after school or attending the madrasa after school for a number of years until they have fulfilled their obligation to actually learn the Quran and to read all of the Quran and of course for a lot of South Asian girls that's that's the entire span of their religious education um, and it, it ceases as soon as they've completed the Quran many of the Pakistani young men in Hong Kong will continue to go on to the mosque um, after they've completed the Quran and, and try and attain the title of Hafiz uh, and That is quite an interesting dynamic here because you only really see that amongst the Pakistani population. You certainly don't see um, Chinese Muslims doing that. And also there's very, very few Chinese Muslims that will attend the madrassas. Uh, The focus being for, for a lot of Chinese Muslims that school is more important than learning the Quran. As I mentioned earlier, the religion is something that becomes more important later in life. So we have... Uh, very different experiences between these different communities. And, of course, for the Indonesians, they learn to be Muslim in Hong Kong in a different way as well. So they've already had their schooling back in Indonesia, but when they come to Hong Kong, a lot of them find that they have more access to their Islamic identity, as often is the case when people move um, beyond their, you know, Islamic culture, their their background, it suddenly becomes more important, or the volume is turned up, and because of the compressed space of Hong Kong, it's very easy for the Indonesian um, women to access the mosque together and to meet friends. So there's a there's a combination, a tie between their social network and the ease of attending um, the mosque, and also the number of uh, free facilities to enable them to learn more about Islam is is really quite um, important for them. It gives them an extra dynamic. So a lot of the Indonesian women that I spoke to, they also learned to be Muslim more. Or they considered themselves that they had learned more and become a better Muslim since being in Hong Kong in this secular Chinese society than they had in Indonesia. So that's very interesting how that process of learning to be Muslim extends um, across the young people and and how it, it, it's part of their, part of something that they have to focus on intentionally. They're not going to learn about Islam unless they focus on this and actually they go to the mosque, they go to the madrasa because a, there is a, a lack of Islamic education or religious education in the schools that the majority of these uh, um, youth will attend. And also, Christian, in this sort of aspect, um, a lot of the young people that I'm talking about here are actually uh, working class ethnic minority youth in Hong Kong. So they are from families that aren't particularly we- uh, uh, wealthy or affluent. Uh, often for a, a Pakistani family, they have a one father who is doing work outside of the home and the mother remains the housewife. And often that father is uh, doing uh, menial work. So they're earning a very low wage, supporting the family, perhaps um, being a security guard or um, working as a road worker. And so they have a very different experience to some of the expatriate communities, which uh, have got an awful lot of uh, disposable income to do, pursue education, to actually uh, also fund their children and going to good schools and, and going on to higher education. The access that's available to a lot of the ethnic minority youth in Hong Kong is English language education. Even though we are in a Chinese city, the colonial throwback, the the culture has been that ethnic minorities, if they arrive in Hong Kong, they are streamed into an English language school rather than um, a Chinese speaking school. And you can imagine that if you are born and raised in Hong Kong and you, your, your, your family is, is Pakistani. For example, you speak Urdu at home, you're educated in English at school, but you're going to also hopefully, because a lot of the, the families have aspirations to stay in Hong Kong, they regard themselves as Hong Kong people. There is a real limit to how much, um, a South Asian can contribute to Hong Kong society only speaking English, only being educated in English. There needs to be a greater uh, focus on a lot of these youth being able to access Chinese curriculum. So that's some of the tension there that, I, that I speak about. And I again, I speak about that in a, in a later chapter. But what is interesting in terms of the education is the um, the Chinese Islamic secondary school that... Uh, is available in in one area of Hong Kong Island and students that do attend that as I speak about in in this chapter they they develop a very different understanding of their Islamic identity because they're taught about Islam at the school in many cases they are again Pakistani children being taught by Chinese Muslim teachers in this school about Islam and they are quite savvy in distinguishing the Islam that's presented to them from their their parents and their cultural background as a Pakistani, and Islam that's presented from a Chinese perspective, and they become very interested in actually trying to pull out what is essential about Islam, what is the truth about Islam, because they're aware of these different cultural practices that that are. Um, contradicting each other in many cases, the way in which we pray, the way in which we dress. For example, uh, a lot of the the young girls were talking about how it's confusing between home and school because there's no uh, correlation. And so they actually become far more educated in Islam by having to deal with some of these contradictions and ambiguities, which is really
1: quite interesting. Now, as far as everyday practice... Um, one of the ways you kind of frame this is you talk about daily life consisting consisting of an ensemble of procedures. Um, yeah. And through these through these everyday practices, uh, Muslims are navigating through ideas of sameness and uh, ideas of difference within the various communities they interact with. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, everyday practice plays out in this way?
0: Yeah, this, this chapter was really um, uh, a key way of just highlighting the diversity uh, of Muslim youth particularly and how they actually follow Islam, how they regard themselves as being uh, a good Muslim, even though they might not do everything that other people expect them to do. So they have to deal with um, wanting to pray. Some, Some individuals want to pray five times a day, but the practicalities of their schoolwork, practicalities of what they can achieve, in Hong Kong and how their their daily lives are organized around traveling to school and and, and being in particular lessons means that they can't do everything that they want to do. But at the same time, we look at the ways in which um, other people would choose to practice um, and, and justify that, that it's not too important for them that they can get away with, with not following the same sorts of rules because... They're not in Pakistan. They're in Hong Kong, and and things are different here. Uh, In this chapter, I I look at daily prayers. look at how uh, Muslims actually justify what they do in terms of practicing, how often they will pray, um, how important they regard themselves, uh, regard it it to be to pray how many times a day. And then I also look at... um, Ramadan and looking at fasting during Ramadan and how that is organized and how there are contradictions about what they might um, try and achieve, how parents will ask the children not to fast um, because it's too hard, it's, it's too hot in Hong Kong, it's too humid, that they need to to uh, try and keep their energies. And also one particularly interesting comment was given by a 17-year-old young man who talked about his challenges being in Ramadan and the fact that Hong Kong is not a Muslim city and so he had to deal with not so much the the challenges of, of going without food but he found that when he was uh, around the city or traveling to school or going to work, he would be distracted by young women wearing short skirts. And and he was trying to be pure and keep away from temptation while he was uh, going through Ramadan. And he found that there were many challenges in Hong Kong because in Pakistan, everyone is doing the same thing at the same time. Everyone is in step with you. Um, But in Hong Kong, it's more challenging. It's more difficult. So there are a number of different ways in which that is played out from the experiences of the young people. Um, encouraged to be praying by their parents uh, and also celebrations looking at Eid and how uh, the Pakistani uh, celebration of Chandraat Moon, the the Moon Night, is performed in in a much more low-key way here in Hong Kong by uh, Pakistani families at the same time.
1: Now, related to this, um, food also plays a very important part in in kind of uh, not only ideas about authenticity, um, but also issues of kind of religious identity. Can you talk a little bit about how, how food factors in here?
0: Yeah. Um, this, the, the, the research that I did on food looking at the ambiguity of halal food in Hong Kong actually has been one of the topics that has been uh, most hotly pursued here in Hong Kong. This is the one that people are most interested in living in Hong Kong. And that's because uh, it, it, Hong Kong is such a, a food Oriented uh, environment, anyway. And people are very interested to know what some of the challenges are for Muslims in Hong Kong. And when I actually say one of the biggest challenges is beyond um, some of the issues of racism that we'll speak about later, halal food is one of the real challenges. And this is something that again and again people bring up. And they'll say, you know, there's not enough halal food in Hong Kong. and it's not reliable enough. But just to give you some of the actual background to this, if we think about um, Chinese culture and we think about the prevalence of pork in Chinese cuisine, we see that there's an immediate cultural barrier here between Islamic culture and Chinese culture. And, and a lot of text and research on Chinese Muslims is, has also brought this up. And it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. In Hong Kong, we have that same issue, and a lot of the young people I spoke to just wouldn't eat Chinese food. And so bringing this into the issue of everyday hybridity, I was very interested how we have a whole group of young Muslims in Hong Kong that won't engage in this aspect of Chinese culture, which is seen as one of the key things about chinese culture enjoying chinese food and when we think about the celebration of multiculturalism as well again food is one of the key ways in which people give a token of accepting difference by saying that you know I'll eat japanese food or I'll eat indian food it's seen as a way in which people can actually kind of just give a token of multiculturalism but in hong kong that that's not happening uh, with, with the Muslim community. There's a lot of uh, Muslims that just won't go near Chinese food. But by the same measure, they are engaging in Chinese culture in a much more uh, intense way by speaking Cantonese, for example. So we have someone who is is a huge fan of Chinese dramas and likes to speak to people on the, on the way to school about what was on TV last night, all in Cantonese. And this same Pakistani uh, young man won't go anywhere near Chinese food because he associates it always with pork, not trusting any um, Chinese food to be a halal in any way. Um, so that's some of the, the, the ambiguity that we talk about, is, is that tension between how uh, multiculturalism is played out by rejecting Chinese food, but then also in some cases the the issue of what is okay to eat and what isn't. So, for example, some people think that it's okay to eat McDonald's um, because McDonald's is not Chinese food. Uh, but then other people say what, some of the food in McDonald's is haram because it's cooked in oil that, uh, you know, other meat products are cooked in oil. So there's a lot of unclear ambiguity about this, And I contrast that with Singapore. McDonald's in Singapore has halal certification. We don't have that in Hong Kong. The only body that can give out halal certification in Hong Kong is the Islamic trustees. And there's only a limited amount of interest from the local community for what businesses want to go for halal certification. I also talk about um, a popular uh, street snack, dim sum, called sumai, fish sumai, which a lot of kids will buy on the way home from school because it's, it's cheap and easy and tasty, um, and it's also fish. So Muslims actually feel that this is, okay, this is halal, it's fish, there's no problem with it. But as we go on to talk about in the chapter, there's uh, this murmur of um, concern that some of the sumai actually has pork oil in it, and if it has pork oil, then it's clearly not halal. So Muslims have to navigate this food culture in Hong Kong, which is very unclear in many cases, what is safe to eat and what isn't safe to eat. Even on occasions like the mid-autumn festival, which a lot of Muslims will enjoy celebrating this Chinese festival with friends, eating um, mooncakes, for example. Mooncakes, uh, some of them are regarded as being halal and some of them aren't. And it's very interesting, there isn't any clear... Uh, area, there's no clear situation in which people can actually say this is obviously halal and this obviously isn't. There's a lot of crossover and speculation and concern and also that intersects with uh, the cultural um, fusion of actual Chinese food and Chinese um, life and also being a Muslim and pursuing those kinds of interests as well.
1: Now, you mentioned this idea of racism, and specifically in a, a Western and uh, particularly an American context, there are certain assumptions uh, about what Muslims believe, what they should be doing, um, and a lot of that boils down to stereotypes that, that people just misunderstand what Islam is all about. How, how does that dynamic work in Hong Kong? What, what exactly is happening? As far as issues of racism and how that plays out in prejudice practices
0: yeah, this was again this was the thing that actually made me want to do the research in the very first place because particularly with young Muslims noticing from, um, in the UK where I came from that British Muslims British young Muslims have a really hard time. They are uh, already uh, have a stigma. Um, and that isn't so much about race, or it's actually very little to do with race. It's a lot to do with um, the prejudice towards Islam, or Islamophobia, as it uh, is termed. There is a, an out and outright concern from the West about what Islam stands for. The, the ideology, the motivations, uh, the militancy, everything uh, that is associated with the, the Islam is something that makes people uncomfortable particularly in the West, there's a lot of that association. In Hong Kong, that is absent. That doesn't exist. And that seems to be for a number of different reasons. We see that, you know, the, the, the West has a, a, a Christian cultural heritage whilst uh, China doesn't. And uh, Hong Kong is has always had a very open attitude to religions in which we have a, a, a secular society in which all religions are allowed to practice and prosper, um, but there is no actual hedging of one particular religion with uh, the overarching organization of the government and legislation. So in that respect, Hong Kong is, is very free and open, but also there's really a, a lack of prejudice towards um religion and religious beliefs in Hong Kong. And that's not just Islam, that's across the board. And that's partly to do with how we look at Chinese religion as well. How we look at the, the beliefs of, uh, of Chinese um, uh, superstitions, as some people will term them, that the religious background there has always been fairly inclusive, where it's not so much about what you believe, it's about Actually, taking part in the community and joining in with celebrations. So, the idea of there being a prejudice towards Islam doesn't make sense. People are allowed to pray and believe what they want to believe, it's their actual participation in society and in culture that seems to be more key. And so, a lot of the prejudice that we see in Hong Kong is focused only on ethnicity, on race there might be the odd sort of situation where someone will say, you shouldn't be wearing a headscarf, it's too hot. But that doesn't have that same sort of antagonism in which we see, particularly um, post-9-11 when we see in, in America people having their headscarves ripped off in the street, and recently um, in the UK with the, the Woolwich murder, um, you know, people uh, being attacked in the street for being visibly Muslim. There is far more of a benign curiosity about the dress of a Muslim, and racism uh, exists very much so in terms of uh, uh, skin colour basis in Hong Kong, and is focal on the, the situation in which um, the darker your skin, uh, the the more sort of. Uh, poor you're regarded as being, coming from an undeveloped part of the world and not having wealth. And of course, wealth and status is very important in Hong Kong. So if you if you come from an educated place and if you've got lots of money, you're given a lot of face. But if you come from a place where you don't have very much money and it isn't developed, it's backward, as many Chinese will regard um, other parts of the world as being, sort of India and Africa, then there is that immediate prejudice towards skin color. So in many senses, what we have in Hong Kong is uh, a reversal of what the West is is working towards, particularly when I come from the UK, where uh, a lot of issues of race have been somewhat normalized and issues of cultural difference have been inflated, particularly when we look at Islam. Uh, It's far more... uh, of an issue being a Muslim in Hong Kong, than um, particularly being a, a Muslim woman, than in many other situations that we have currently.
1: Now, the uh, one of the last chapters you you focus on various types of of space, and this I really like this chapter uh, because it draws out kind of issues that aren't often dealt with in Islamic studies. Um, one of the Areas you talk about is uh, urban public spaces. Could you talk about w- how Muslims use these, why they're important for them?
0: Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong is a densely populated uh, urban environment. Uh, because of the nature of how the city has grown, uh, land is at a premium. So people. Build up. Anyone who, who has seen some of the photos of Hong Kong or visited Hong Kong is, is well aware of the uh, incredible uh, urban compression that we have here. So people live in very small spaces, and people actually have in, in their daily life access to, to only limited spaces for recreation. Um, people actually have a lot of their Daily life outside, in some respects. So it's not unusual in Hong Kong to see someone in a shopping mall wearing their pajamas. And by not being unusual, it's, it's kind of normal uh, because people live very close to these areas, commercial space and uh, domestic living is done in a very, very tight area. It's, it's all compressed in the same sort of locality that these places run over. So for, for young Muslims, they have to share their recreation with countless other people. And what tends to be the interests of, for example, I talk about it in this chapter uh, of South Asian young young men, they they want to play cricket. But a lot of the space available to them is only basketball courts or um, sitting out areas in, in parks and playgrounds. They don't have the same sort of space available, and therefore they, they have to re- use it and try and accommodate this space and try and colonize little bits of space here and there, in which they can use for their own uh, interest their own enjoyment, uh, their own recreation. And often they are being moved on. They're being asked to only use the space in the legitimate means. And particularly that's a very typical Hong Kong trait. If there's a basketball court, it's for playing basketball. You can't go in there and ride your bike. You can't go and kick a football around. And you can't go and play cricket. These kids find that they're always somewhat being a little bit subversive, always being dealt with with suspicion that they're they're causing trouble by not doing the legitimate thing in the legitimate space and they're being moved on. But the only real spaces for them to play cricket are actual cricket clubs, which tend to be. For the elite again, and a lot of working-class Pakistani or, or South Asian kids can't really access those environments. So that's one of the dynamics, and that that's very much the urban space uh, is very interesting for Hong Kong studies, and it's it's very important. So looking at how these young Muslims use these spaces is quite interesting. Also, talk about um, uh, uh, a Pakistani girl who actually regards herself as being chinese she doesn't have a lot of identification with her uh, her islamic culture and background so she hangs out mostly with her chinese friends and how she navigates the city as i mentioned in the book is very much about avoiding other places where muslims are or other south asians are so she has um, a, a kind of mental map of the city and she avoids those particular areas where she knows she's going to encounter other muslims because she wants to hang out with her friends and not be hassled she doesn't don't want people to actually be judging her, and by default judging her, judging her family by the fact that she's hanging out with her Chinese friends, that she hasn't got her headscarf on, and that she's eating Chinese food as well. There's a, a number of different things that she, you know, will, will associate this um, scrutiny that she falls under. But then, for a lot of her her peers, a lot of the other Pakistani girls, they have a very limited spatial range. They're not allowed to go out after school. They're only allowed to, to be at home, do their homework, and have friends, cousins come around. And what I talk about in this chapter that was a very interesting thing to start looking into is their use of um, social media as well, how they can go home and they could go on Facebook and they could socialize and potentially be open to a lot of other things that they wouldn't be if they were were hanging out in the in the local playground or the park. Um, that was very interesting as well, looking at how they, the prevalence of the use of Facebook, for example, and often with their parents not having the same kind of knowledge about what social media is and, and what they're doing online, uh, hanging out, talking to boys, having profile pictures with their makeup on. And it's very interesting looking at not just, urban space but also looking at virtual space was a, a great way to try and tease out some of these other dynamics
1: yeah actually um uh, the the section you talk about kind of online space i thought was really good could you give us a little more detail about how how that played out because i think that's also another area that is is relevant to kind of uh, beyond the muslim community in hong kong that this this is going on in various muslim communities
0: yeah, and, and it really didn't intersect with um, too much of the sort of Islamic identity. It was very much a, a social situation where uh, I, I remember being in one group, we were having a discussion with, with a number of um, uh, school schoolchildren, teenagers, and they would say that after school, they would all hang out again. The same people that we were hanging around the table with, they would all go home and carry on hanging out talking to each other and chatting on Facebook. But this also this discussion also coincided with um, the uh, the assassination of Osama bin Laden as well. And it was very interesting to, to hear about how some of these very quiet girls were actually completely uh, fascinated with trying to get hold of a picture of the, the dead Osama bin Laden. They, um, one girl was telling me that she'd been searching Google for the last couple of weeks trying to get a decent picture because she wanted proof. She she was not convinced that he had really been killed. And it, it was very interesting looking at how these other sides of their personality can be played out by being online, how they can follow their interests in looking for gruesome pictures of uh, a dead bin Laden or uh, in other situations how they follow their favorite movie star uh, online or follow cookery tips and things like that. So it it was a good way of learning more about their interests and how um, being online uh, was a real outlet for them to sort of span their their interests beyond what they were allowed to do in in the general cycle of going to school and coming home and being at home. It seemed a lot more key for um, the girls in particular than the boys because the boys have a much broader spatial range, they're allowed to go out. They're, they're, they're quite free to, to, to move around the city and do things. Um, but being online was quite different for the girls. It was a it was a real outlet.
1: Now, Paul, um, we've we've talked to you for a while. Um, are there any other takeaways that you think are really important from this book that we haven't covered yet? Well. Um,
0: I think that the book is, is really helpful for people who are interested in, in looking at um, Muslim diversity, looking at the sort of social situations, the multicultural uh, plays of being a Muslim in a very different cultural environment and looking at how uh, the intersection of different cultures overlaps. Um, particularly being in a Chinese city, this is a very interesting take. Um, but from where this goes, I think that this leads on to, to looking really at other research about on Muslims in, in Hong Kong and looking uh, more at some of the religious aspects, because this looks a lot more at the everyday uh, encounters and the, the sort of the, the cultural values of being a Muslim in the territory, rather than looking um, at some of the more key religious issues of Piety and looking at religious beliefs. So this is very much um, a, a book about culture rather than a book about religion.
1: Well, it's uh, I think it's a, a welcomed addition, and I hope more people follow your lead. Um, what uh, what what kind of projects are you working on now? What what do you have coming down the pipeline?
0: Uh, okay, at, at the moment um, I've gone back to one of my passions, and I'm actually. Following the organization and practice of, of making Hajj from Hong Kong, so i've um, been talking to a lot of people, a lot of uh, people who have already made the pilgrimage to Mecca from Hong Kong and who are actually in the process of organizing the pilgrimage this year so i 'm following a group of pilgrims i 'm also looking at some of the the dynamics uh, of being a Haji here in Hong Kong and what it actually what's its significance? And also the, 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 the contrast between Mecca as a world city, uh, an overcrowded world city, particularly during Hajj, and also looking at Hong Kong as an overcrowded world city. So that's what I'm involved in, and I'm finding some really fascinating things, and it's, it's a great project to be involved in at the moment. So I'm enjoying that.
1: Great. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So maybe you can come back and talk to us when, when, when all that comes together for you. Oh so, Yeah, that would be great. All right. Thanks again, Paul. We appreciate your time.
0: Okay. Cheers, Christian.
1: That was my conversation with Paul O'Connor about Islam in Hong Kong, Muslims and Everyday Life in China's World City, published by University of Hong Kong Press in 2012. Thanks for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.